This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. If you saw a girl's name written as Wen, would you read Wen as in Wendy? This is just one of the differences that Rebecca Lim has written about her main character in Tiger Daughter. Welcome back to Published or Not, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Jan. It's lovely to be on. <laughs> we learn that her name is pronounced Wern. What else makes this character unique? I mean, she's unique, I guess, like any other migrant or refugee child is unique. Um, there are sort of hidden um, aspects to her that people outside her home doesn't don't know about. So um, for lots of kids in school, I guess they're trying to navigate Australian society and Australian culture. But back at home, they're also navigating all these sort of arcane rules that they have to follow as well. Well, her father wanted her to have this name, but constantly belittles her. He calls her lazy, stupid, small, insolent. And you know, he's not quite happy about her being a girl because family names die when you have daughters. And another thing he says, girls can't do everything that boys can do. And no parties. This is for your own protection. It is your job to obey, my job to keep you safe. Well, so what's wrong with Wern? Oh, I think, I guess, you know, uh, it's a whole play on, I guess, tiger mothers in the title. She's a tiger daughter in the sense that in some families, the son is just basically worth more. So in her family, she's sort of out the wrong gender. Uh, she's not particularly brilliant. She's not particularly tall, fast or beautiful. Um, and so to her father, she's sort of a bit of a write-off. She's a bit flighty. So there's a lot wrong with her, I think, in her father's eyes. But in her own eyes, she's sort of struggling to make her own way. Now, she's got a number of friends at school. She, her two best girlfriends are from Sudan who would never have met each other unless they came to Australia. But it's Henry she feels she has to help. Why does Henry need protection? Um, Henry's um, a, a migrant child, I guess, who's a little bit less far along the trail than Wen is. So she, uh, she's been in the country for a lot longer. She's got relative fluency in, you know, language, social conventions, and Henry has absolutely none. He can't even understand the remedial English teacher in their early bird classes at school because the man's beard is too big and he speaks like an Australian and Henry just struggles with the whole thing. So Wen's kind of his protector, even though, you know, she's small and female and insolent and a little bit slow and lazy, according to her parents. Well, let's hear a little bit from Tiger Daughter from page 31. Sure. Stand in my shoes, Henry once said grimly, and then you may laugh. I tell Henry about my dad all the time, all the things he does, and Henry completely gets it. How fury is like this thing that holds the entire house up. How all of us are suspended like hot air balloons and drifting further and further away from each other and from our true selves. Henry understands how anger has tides and temperatures and speeds that can suck you down or spit you out, depending on the day, the hour, the moment, changing you forever. Who knows what would happen if suddenly all that anger disappeared, Henry said once. What would we do with ourselves then? We would feel joy, I'd replied immediately, sure of it. Life wouldn't seem so narrow. Yes, Henry had replied simply, understanding right away. They're both only children in difficult families, but what they share is an aspiration of hope. What do they want to do? What, do, what does especially Henry want to achieve? 
I think what Henry would really like to do is just to break out of his miserable um, living circumstances. And I think a lot of that's been brought um, home a lot during COVID, how a lot of families are really trapped in this cycle of control and despair. So for Henry, I think because his mother is really depressed um, to the point of catatonia and his father works all day and really doesn't have time to take care of him. Henry just needs to find something else in his life, something to look forward to, something to become, because what he is now is is such a miserable thing. So it's the thought about maybe doing a, a test to get into a selective school, changing mm-hmm. schools, changing aspirations. And yep. by the end of the book, we don't know that they've achieved this. It was getting to the exam that made this story. There were so many obstacles. And the first was something most authors would not consider a character's suicide. And there are such Mm -hmm. different responses. Suicide, usually care and compassion. But that's not the primary response that's given in this book. That's true. I mean, in a lot of cultures as well, and I can't speak for cultures outside my own, but there's a stigma around mental illness and around, I guess, you know, people who are considered bad parents or bad mothers in particular. So for Henry's mother, who is, a, is as, as I said before, quite depressed and, and catatonic, she doesn't live up to, you know, the cultural standard of what a good mother should be, especially the good mother of a son. Mm-hmm. So this book, yeah, it kind of deals with topics, I think, that a lot of children just deal with in their homes and can't really speak to people externally like teachers about, you know, miserable home circumstances, parents who aren't well, not being fed enough, not being safe. You throw cultural differences, but there's also class differences. Henry's father works in the markets. Wern's father is educated. He's studied to be a doctor, but he thinks he is so much better than the work that he does. This father has high expectations of others. It suits him to have his wife seem to be a tie-tie? What's that? That's right. That's a Chinese term. Essentially, the meaning, the origin of that term was a a wealthy woman who doesn't work. So, you know, culturally, I guess if you go back and look at Confucian theory, it's all about bringing up, you know, responsible, kind, benevolent, educated gentlemen. But there's nothing in Confucian theory about how you actually grow a daughter or grow a mother. So she's, she's kind of expected to just support the man in the family and, and that's the role she has at the start of the book yeah as even her daughter says she's treading very carefully around her husband uh Wern sees her mother suffocated by her husband's self-anger a woman's lot is to endure how's her father coping I think he just copes like a lot of men do. And, and it's also, it's a comment on toxic masculinity as well, but in a particular cultural context, he copes by just flying into rages or, you know, lying in bed for three days and not coming out of his bedroom, as a lot of men kind of do. And, and that's why we've sort of been noticing this in the media, that they don't have real outlets for their emotions. And so sometimes it comes out as, you know, domestic abuse or financial abuse or domestic control. So we have a mother and a daughter who are caught between rage and fear and the father takes on parenting. Well, how he does this is usually to quote Confucius, as you say, as as, uh, Wern says, he's a walking lectern. And I didn't realise just how Confucius was so gender biased in the quotes you give. 
Well, this is the thing. I mean, we, we can't be sure that Confucius actually even wrote the Analects because they're 2,500 years um, old, apparently. But I think, unfortunately, with the big emphasis on becoming a gentleman in the court, there just isn't a lot of room for you know, theory around what a good woman looks like. You know, I think um, at one point in the book, Wern actually shouts at her dad, you know, me and mum are just trying to be good men because there is no role modelling for women in there. It could have been an oversight, but, you know, essentially it's geared around, you know, getting the man sort of a place in society, but not not a girl or not a, not a woman. Well, Wern's preferred Chinese philosopher is Leo Zhu, who I had not heard of. And something he, she quotes from him, I will never stop trying. And I thought, yes, good on you. That's true. We've talked about it. It's a good alternative mantra, I think. (laughs) Well, we've talked about a lot of the seriousness in the book and there is a lot of it. You really tipped into sort of sexism and abuse and just the things we've covered already. But there's also humour. And Wern has a real problem with long division. And I like from the book. She thinks she has selective timetable amnesia. <laughs> Which I did too as a child, I think. Oh, right. And then there's the translation difficulties. Henry asks, Wern, a happy medium, but medium can be a person who speaks with a dead, an art form, an average, a substance. Which one? So, yes. It really- How do you use things? I know. That, that's the beauty of language and sort of like trying to, you know, things that like we say this all the time, things are lost in translation. And I think for a lot of people who come to Australia, especially because of, you know, all the strange idioms we use, cobar, sport, you know, all that kind of stuff. If you take someone who's already sort of unfamiliar with the English language and then layer that on top of it, it's just incomprehensible, I think, for a child coming here in the beginning who doesn't really speak English that well. Now, Rebecca Lim, many times I've chatted with you, you've always had books with, oh, the Chinese myths through them or a bit of fantasy. This one is certainly grounded in the here and now, although you have weren't talking about wearing lady armour and going out to fight devils and ghosts. (laughs) How did you choose not to put, you know, to really base her in the here and now rather than put a little bit of, fantasy through yeah it's hard I mean people have been asking you know how do you write a heroine who's contemporary when all you do is sort of add you know deus ex machina into all your stories and I think she is the deus ex machina she is her own you know machine of god who sort of goes in there and change changes people's lives so I think she's quite similar to my other kind of paranormal heroines she's someone who's an outsider but she has extraordinary abilities but this time it's just in empathy and kindness so I think the sort of template you know heroine that she is is quite similar to the ones I usually write but I've just decided to put her into a lower sort of socioeconomic demographic and one that's you know plagued by casual racism. I want to move from your novel into something else that you're involved with voices from the intersections can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. Um, People sort of grandly call it an organisation or um, a group, but it's really just me and a First Nations um, author and friend called Amblin Kwaimalano, who lives in Fremantle. And the two of us just run this sort of voluntary thing without any money from our studies. So, so far, um, you know, with no government assistance whatsoever, we've, um, with the help of our friends in publishing, put together a pitch day for emerging authors. And so most of the authors who came to that day, you know, either were living with disability or were people of colour 
or were First Nations um, or LGBT or an intersection of one of those. So that's why we speak of intersections because a lot of people who aren't sort of published suffer from more than one form of discrimination. And so we had a pitch day, I think in 2017, we published an anthology of mostly emerging authors from those intersections in 2018. But unfortunately, because of COVID, uh, we, we were going to do something with ANU, which involved mentoring some emerging authors, but we just have not been able to get that off the ground yet. There's just been no way to, you know, get the word out there or to do anything with people. So that might be later this year or next year, I think. I know I looked at the website and I was very impressed. You've hooked in with uh, Writers of Victoria and they support you, you support them. Really, really good. Well, now... We're coming back to fiction. We've spoken about myths mm -hmm. and factualities and uh, back to the book. Wern wants a life more satisfying than the life her parents expect her to lead. Rebecca Lynn writes about a migrant girl navigating two worlds in her novel, Tiger Daughter. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Thanks so much, Jan. Take care. You too. And now it's David's turn. Who speaks for the lives of little children whose voices are abruptly cut short? Catherine Kovacic does in her account of one particular serial killer in 1930s Melbourne. The book is The Schoolgirl Strangler. So Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. This is a divergence from what you normally write where crime and art come together. What's going on? It certainly is a divergence. Um, I came across this story when I was doing research on 1930s Melbourne for my first book, The Portrait of Molly Dean. And of course I was looking at you know, where the tram lines ran and what society was like, but I was also looking at crime, and particularly crime against women and children in Melbourne around that time. And this crime, these crimes came up, and I remember thinking at the time, someone should write a true crime book about this, but I put it to one side because I was you know, up to my eyebrows in the world of Alex Clayton and art crime. And, um, and then a couple of years ago, my publisher actually said to me, have you thought of doing a true crime? And I said, well, I haven't actually, but, and I reeled off all the facts and stats about the poor victims in this case. And I hadn't realized how much it had stuck with me until we had that conversation. And so at that point, I took myself off to the public record office to see what was in the files there and the schoolgirl strangler began to come together from there. But it would require a different writing style, a different use of imagination in some ways. Hugely different, um, and particularly because the victims were young in this. You know, I wanted to really honour honour them and put them first in the story, not not have a story about a serial killer. So, for me, that meant doing all the research up front and really sifting through the facts to see how that story would sit together. I wanted to make sure I had enough about them and the lead up to the crimes to make that story come together for me. And yes, definitely put on a different hat and, and to see it from, from the perspective of the public at that time too, I think, because that was, that was a huge thing, the way those crimes unfolded. Well, four young girls all lose their lives over a period of five years. Mina Griffiths, she's only 12, Hazel Wilson, 18, Ethel Belshaw, 13, June Rushmer, who's only six. The ages and the innocence of them all makes this quite disturbing to read in some ways. Yeah, Hazel was actually only 16, and the thing about Hazel was that 
Um, she'd suffered from tuberculosis for many years, so she was a very petite girl. She was small and very delicate looking, uh, pale skin as that, that sort of, I guess we think of the Victorian tubercular look that women cultivated, but she, she looked younger. So even though she was an older girl and she was out by herself, I think she, shall we say, she fitted into the killer's type of a, in the way she looked. And behind this as well are fundamental errors in policing. I mean, there was no psychological awareness then of serial killers. The term didn't even exist at that time. So the police certainly made several very major errors, um, a lot of false accusations. But at the same time, I think we have to cut them a bit of slack because it was what they were dealing with was simply beyond anything they'd ever encountered. You know, they were they were used to that they were used to domestic violence they were used to murders being committed by people who knew their victims the idea of someone who killed randomly out of nowhere and selected their victims from the general population was just just beyond their comprehension because the ripple effect in terms of what it has on society the effect on society there's one robert mcmahon who's falsely accused but he came close to being executed for mina griffiths Uh, As he he said himself, you know, if he hadn't been in another state and ultimately proven to be in another state, if he'd just been in Melbourne, he would have hung for it. And Gordon Knights, a young lad, had to defend himself against the charge of murder as well. That's right. And and when he was exonerated, the, the attitude of the police and the government was, well, we were just doing our job. You know, we'll just carry on doing our job. So no compensation there, no money back for all the legal fees you pay. And what emerges as well is how easily the serial killer could move within the community, abduct these girls and go unnoticed. I think that was something that really struck me about the case to begin with, that these girls all seemingly vanished in plain sight. They were in public, very public events, uh, seen within minutes of their disappearance and then gone. And it's, it's almost that trope that we have about serial killers. He was, you know, it's such a quiet neighbour, such a, such a normal man. And it's, it's the very case here. And the discovery of the killer is actually anticlimactic. I don't want to give any too much away about the story, but oh, she's not the only one. There are three others. I think, yeah, I think for me there was an element of the boastfulness when, when the police, by luck more than anything else, got him for the final crime and his confession was, this isn't the only one, there are others. To me, there was an element of the boastfulness. You may think you've got me, but this is how clever I really am. But the focus moves away from the horror associated with these innocent girls losing their lives to the psychology of someone like Arnold Carl Soderman, Mm -hmm. who is the murderer and doesn't seem to have a care in the world. I think that was quite fascinating and, and even later on one of the investigating officers said he'd found him you know, quite a, quite a nice man to talk to. You know, I asked him why he did it and he said, Shh, I don't know, just something comes over me. So the psychology is very interesting and of course there were ideas that he had some you know, brain disease or injury or something like that, but at the end of the day... Well, you go through these mm. in the book. You know, was it alcohol? Was it a mania? Was it an inherited gene? These sorts of things. But ultimately, we're left without a a tangible answer. And this is what's interesting because we go from the psychology of the serial killer virtually to the psychology of the reader who's wanting an answer. 
It's interesting, isn't it? And I think that I think that was probably something that the psychiatrists who spoke to him and examined him battled with too, that he was something that they hadn't really encountered either, so they really wanted to hang a label on it and find a way to, to fit, I, it seems very mild to call it a behaviour, his behaviour into their science and what they knew. But they couldn't, and I think he was quite manipulative with them too, that he would be telling them one thing. And this came out in court that they even asked the psychiatrist, do you think he's telling you one thing and actually telling other people something else? They said, well, that's possible, but I only go on what he tells me. It's very convenient. But this is what makes reading true crime so disturbing, or at least I find it so, that there aren't any answers. I've got a distance when I read a novel from a fictitious character, gruesome murder. Yes, but it's all part of the author's imagination. This is true. I, I found that writing it too, that it's, it's, there's a different space in your brain when you're dealing with a true crime and crime of this calibre too, where the victims are children and where the killer is remorseless. Well, Catherine, we're going to have to end the interview there, the psychology of the killer, but the purpose of the book, as I understood it, was virtually to give a voice to those girls who were lost. Absolutely. So if the listener and reader want to find out more, the book is The Schoolgirl Strangler, the author Catherine Kovacic, and it's an Echo publication. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, David. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.